Now for Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's premier law talk radio show. Good morning and welcome to Raising the Bar, Greater RVA's law talk radio show. It is a winter wonderland out there in Greater RVA in March. And today we're going to talk about what is it like to be a foster parent. This is kind of part two of single dads and foster parenting and joining me um, again is uh, one of my favorite clients, Joel Elston, who's braved it all the way from Hanover, where it's a little bit snowier this uh, this March morning. Um, and uh, for those of you out there, please drive safely today. But um, we are going to talk about what is it all about to be a foster parent, to adopt from foster care. There's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of mystery about foster parent rights. And as an attorney um, that runs the Adoption and Surrogacy Law Center at Locke and Quinn, I have a lot of foster parents that come to me for advice um, in the area of, of foster parenting, especially with regard to what their rights are. Speaking of rights, um, if you are not familiar with the Raising the Bar Law Talk radio show, we have a fabulous website that has lots of legal resources on it, including um, lower costs and pro bono resources that are out there. And if you have not seen our show the videos are uploaded to that page. The videos are also on the Lock and Quinn Facebook Live page. There are a plethora of different uh, areas of the law that we've been covering, all the way from employment law to workers' compensation to adoption to surrogacy um, to medical malpractice, uh, personal injury. So uh, there is probably a topic of interest to you. Check out the uh, www. RaisingTheBarLawTalk.com uh, page for a lot of free information about the law. So good morning, Joel. Good morning, Colleen. It's good to see you again. Yes, you too. Great. Uh, thank you so much for coming all the way down from Hanover through the snow this morning. Surprisingly, <laughs> it wasn't bad, but uh, it, you know the you, you never know in Richmond traffic on a good day. It's it's not right. often good, but the uh, the drive wasn't bad. But it is snowing pretty heavy out there in northern northern part of this area. Yes, and, and like a good Hanover County person, you you have a truck. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> if you're in Hanover County, you need a truck. Exactly. <laughs> so let's talk about foster parenting. Um, in the last show, we, you know, we talked a little bit more about what it's like to be a single dad and your story. And so we're coming back today because um, there is a lot of mystery about the area of foster parenting and what's involved. Um, what prompted you to look into being a foster parent? One of the things uh, that, you know, in my life, and we, I discussed my journey the last time on the show, and I, I won't rehash that, but one of the things that I, I had a need, I, I felt the need to be a parent along the way. A lot of chain of events happened, and I wanted to do that, and I'd had several relationships that never really felt like that would have been a, a, a really the appropriate way to go, and a, along the way, I, I said, you know, this is a concept. There's kids out there without homes. I have a home. Right. Uh, I, I thought I had a couple of barriers in my background that would prevent me from doing that. But as I investigated, I realized most people could qualify. Right. Um, you know, the the obvious things would rule people out. But, uh, you know, I have a, a, a little bit of a history due to some addiction issues that I thought would prevent me to from doing it, but it did not. Uh, you can get waivers and workarounds. And as long as you're uh, of good character and, and you can minimally provide it, it doesn't take much uh you know i i laughingly say the 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 main part of it is having a good sense of humor and a thick skin right and it, it, you, <laughs> if you can if you have those two things a little space in your home 
uh, you can do this. And we have so many children that it, it's hard to comprehend. It's an easy thing to overlook. They're an undervoiced group that uh, uh, that everybody wants to adopt the beautiful little blonde-haired, blue-eyed baby. There's a three-month waiting list for that out there. But there's tons of 10 to 12 to 15-year-old kids that all they want in life is a family of their own. They want a forever family. That's it. Yeah, and even at 16, 17, they still want a forever, even after they've aged out, as you might say, right. um, you know, they still want that forever family to come home for Christmas, Thanksgiving, to have there for the grandkids. Absolutely. And one of the one of the things that I have found amazing and I just find endearing is some of the better matches that I've actually seen take place. I'm aware of this 70-year-old lady. She decided to become a foster parent and she's, you know, this was in South Carolina. She's a Caucasian lady and she ended up adopting the 16-year-old African-American female. And and the story is amazing how they, they you know, it, the roles this 10 years ago, it was a great match. And now the, 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 the mother's older, now the daughter's now sort of the t- caretaker. And it's really a beautiful story. And sometimes older parents make a great match. So right. a lot of people think I'm too old to do this or I don't have enough money to do this. And Really, there are workarounds for everything, and and it isn't what prevents most people would think what would prevent them from being a foster parent is not really a problem. Right. So let's go back to one thing. I know in the last show that we did together, you shared um, the the gambling addiction um, as as part of your story, which is a really compelling story, and um, we talked a little bit about how um, any uh, any. Um, crime associated with gambling right. is not what we call a barrier crime. So in looking at adoption or foster parenting, um, let's try to, let's take the mystery a little bit about what are the crimes that can prevent you from being a foster parent or adop- adoptive parent. And those are what we call the barrier crimes. Right. And they normally have to do with assaults and sexual assaults and um, armed robbery, carrying weapons, um, using drugs, manufacturing drugs around children. Right. So um, there there are a lot of things that don't bar people from adopting. And, um, in fact, I had one client who had the um, uh, the misdemeanor of throwing the uh, coins out of the car in a road rage, and he was charged with um, assault, with a, attempted assault with a missile. Miss- yeah. yeah. <laughs> and... Um, and that misdemeanor, though, after 10 years is forgiven. Right. Um, so uh, folks that uh, think they might not be able to adopt or think they might not be able to be a foster parent really need to, and that, that because they have something in their background, um, really need to look a little bit deeper just to see, is that truly going to be a barrier to them or not? Exactly. And and the web, uh, DSS website has several, they, they get very clear on what the barrier crimes are. But as you're saying, the, the obvious stuff, you know, uh, inappropriate behavior with children, child pornography, any of that stuff, you're clearly, you know, no shot. You shouldn't even consider it. Right. Be Sex a, offenders, yeah, yeah, not, yeah, not going to happen. Yeah, yeah <laughs> not going to happen, and you, you should be arrested for trying. But uh, the as far as as my, my charge was a felony theft charge, and it was in 1995, and you know the the factors that they looked at was there. It was nonviolent. Right. I, I and, and I'm not minimizing it, but it was a nonviolent. Right. It didn't, and it didn't involve right. children. It didn't involve children. Right. And I made complete and full restitution. My rights to bear arms, my rights to vote, all have all been restored. Okay. Uh, so all those are factors when they're looking at doing it. So even a felony charge, right, can be. Uh, uh, not necessarily removed or overlooked, but it can be taken in consideration. It, it, 
can't you can't have a felony today and adopt tomorrow. No matter what the felony, you can't. <laughs> but but if you have a period of time in there, and and I you know had to turn my life around in a great way and was able to demonstrate I'm a productive citizen and. Um, as I tell people, I, I think my past makes me a better parent. So, you know, in, in a sense, I make it a, a skill set with today. But uh, it, it is something that I encourage people, if you feel drawn to do this, don't self-limit. Don't, you know, most things can be worked around. You know, again, you can't rob a bank and then adopt uh, with a gun, and that can't be done, uh, adopt a child. But they're, they're most of the what most people face, you know, possession of marijuana 25 years ago is not going to keep you from adopting a child. Right, right. And, and that's, and, 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 and on a side note with that coming too, and I encourage anybody that gets to that point of process, don't lie about it either. It, oh, yeah. It, 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 the, <laughs> it you definitely know, can compound things right, if you do that. It, that's what makes it worse. If, if you're honest and said, look, yes, you know, in college I got busted with, you know, bag of pot. Just put it out there because, trust me, the background investigation is going to find even – Things that you weren't convicted of, they'll find the arrest, and you're going to have to explain it. So, right. you know, it, it, but don't worry about it. Yeah. So besides a criminal background check and a child protective services background check, um, what else do you, uh, let's talk about what else gets done in terms of clearing somebody to be a foster parent? The, m- most all states and in, in the two states that I fostered in South Carolina and Virginia both require a certain amount of training, and the training varies uh, I actually went through an agency to become a therapeutic foster parent, and that can be relevant in our discussion later. Uh, and a therapeutic foster parent is trained to take some of the more severe cases, uh, deal with the issues that come along that, that are not typical in all children. I happen to believe everybody should have the same training because there's no way that these kids aren't going to have some issues, but that's a side note. Uh, the home study is a process that most people get scared of or – uh, worry about. Right, right. And, and the home study is basically probably the most thorough investigation you could go through. You have a, a social worker that comes out and they literally go by step by step of your, your history. Yeah. And uh, the, but I, I tell people too, they're not doing the white glove t- test. No, I mean, they're no, not the, taking the, the right, white glove and right. checking if you dust it, right. you know, all the uh, chair railing. Right. In fact, they're putting on another glove, if you know what I mean for that. Uh, the, the, this is a, but, but this process is necessary. And while it may seem invasive, uh, I'm glad they do it. And, and because, you know, they literally go through your history and they, they verify that with different people. I have, uh, I, I believe it was five references for people that I've known, and I was able to provide references from people I've known over 20 years. Um, you know, and, and they look at all that, and they check. It isn't like I want to provide And they literally check, and they ask the people to write a letter on your behalf. Right. So it, it gets to the, the point of making sure that they're, they're, they, they, they check your income. Now, I don't want to scare people off with that. But they, you, you have to be able to minimally afford, and it doesn't mean you have to be wealthy, but they, they check your income. They check a lot of things. They don't check your credit, uh, but if you're in a position of, of clearly not having the means to support, then that would be a factor as well. So they look at all areas of your life. I also had to, had to go through, and this isn't just because I'm you know 55 at this adoption, uh, I had to go through a very th- uh, thorough physical and the doctor had to attest that I, I'm expected to live a normal life. Right. Well, even, even I mean, with the foster adopt home studies in Virginia, even if you're in your 20s, right. they still want to make sure you're not going to die of cancer. Right. You know, you're you're not in a stage right. that that you're you might not make it a year right. or two. Yeah. Right. And the process, in my process this time, 
was probably from training. You know, I started the training in January, and it was probably about June before the entire process was complete. And I don't know if that's standard for everyone here, but that's everyone I talk to sort of feels that way. Uh, I was approved uh, in, in the in the first of June, so it, it was about a five month process right. to get all of this done. Yeah, then it's about average. I mean, I would say I tell people at a minimum, expect a minimum of three months, and that's right. moving pretty quickly. Right. But, you know, three to six months is right. going to be that time frame. Now, um, you do get a little bit of assistance as a foster parent right. in terms of some subsidy money. Right. Um, but then again, they're looking at your finances and saying, well, that's taking care of just you and, and whatever immediate family might be in the household. Now we're adding a, a child. Right. So it's expected that there will be some some subsidy money. But some people uh, think that you that, that that foster parenting is all about getting checks from the government. Right. Taint, taint so, right? <laughs> no. Well, and, and one, of, one of the things, you know, in, in, in my lifestyle, the, the money that I get, while it's appreciated, it doesn't. That doesn't cover a, a week of of Taekwondo school, you know? right? You know, so and and, this, and you know we compete in we're a traveling Taekwondo squad now. So. I, and I understand <laughs> Justin uh, either went to nationals or is he about to go to nationals? Right, he he, okay. he qualified to compete at nationals. Wow. He won a gold medal. And he's champion of North Carolina wow. in his age group, so we're very proud of that. So. And the subsidy money does not <laughs> no, cover all no, of that. No, in fact, yeah. <laughs> I, I just bought our plane tickets to Salt Lake City for July, so uh, it did not cover my plane ticket. Yeah. So much less just <laughs> that. But again, the the money is, is is it does. There's a little bit that comes in with every foster care child. To me, the more valuable piece that comes with this, and and I, I, being an independent businessman and self-employed, uh, you know, insurance personally is just an ongoing thing for me just having to pay for my own insurance uh the the thing that you get you get medicaid with these children right even after they're adopted even after they're adopted yeah. and it continues it can continue until they're even in college uh, as long as they is you know up to 21 as long as they remain in college but definitely till 18 and while medicaid may get some uh a knocks of you know but when it deals with children medicaid is the gold standard. They pay for everything: medication, uh, full dental, counseling. Counseling. Yeah. They, they they pay for for everything. So I, to me, that's the more valuable of the the right. things that comes to play. You know, uh, I've and personally, I've gotten Justin off almost all of his medications since I've adopted him. But when he came in, he was on four or five medications alone. That would have been six or seven hundred dollars a month. Yeah, really expensive. So let's talk about the incentive um, to be a foster parent because I'll have clients come to me or potential clients come and say, um, well, what if their, their goal is to adopt, and they say, what about foster parenting? And I will say, you don't go into foster parenting with the goal to adopt. In fact, the goal when you, when you become a foster parent, you sign an agreement, and your goal is to do whatever it takes to return that child to their biological family if that is feasible. Right. Um, and so let's talk a little bit about about that and the mindset of um, of what goes on because you've adopted three children out of foster care. Yes. Um. One you successfully helped reunite with his biological family. Yes. Um. And um, going into foster parenting, um, not with the goal of adoption, <laughs> is something that people really need to be aware of because you do start to attach to the child and it's there's it's it's hard because you, you're you sign an agreement. The goal is for you to work with the Department of Social Services or the Department of Ch Child and Family Services, whatever it's called in, in whatever state. And your goal is to work with them and go to those meetings with the biological uh, parents, to, you know, if if re re reunification is possible. Right. 
um, or even uh, maybe placement with a relative um, right. as an alternative. So let's talk about how that kind of tug of war in your heart. <laughs> well, and and, I, and not that I want to disagree, there's a little bit of a difference there, especially when you're adopting or going in. You can go into foster care with the concept of, I do want to adopt, with the idea that you're going to have to only allow children whose rights have been terminated, you right. can, you and, can and, do that. And, that, and yeah. that is where you have specifically said um, that I'm taking a child out of foster right. care. Who, where the biological parent rights have been terminated. Right. Exactly. So that is a good distinction, Joel, um, because those children now are what we call freed up for adoption. Right. And, and then w- during, after my approval process, uh, uh, as those that know my story, you know, I lost my son TJ in a car accident right, uh, several right. years ago. And I had a, um, when, when I adopted, when I decided to do this again, they presented me probably with 15 cases before I, Justin's case came along. And all of those cases had the potential of the child to leave the home. And I, I didn't emotionally think I could handle I was aware that I couldn't handle that because what happens is, and just what you're talking about, to be a pure foster parent, to, to, with, to going in. Go in, a, in and you're not taking a child right. in whose biological parent rights have right. been terminated, right. which I think the first two children you the, fostered. That, they did not have the biological right. parent rights terminated. Right. right. And and that that they that was a different scenario than I did this time. So I had to be in fact my very first foster child, uh, his name's Josh, doing very well, uh, lives in South Carolina. He's oh, he's old now, like thirty. It's all that scares <laughs> me. Uh, uh, I never remotely I knew he would be going back with his family. I that was that was in the plan. It was never gonna be an option for him. So there was no – while I emotionally got attached to him, I, I, I always reminded him that he's going back to his family. His family had work to do. Um, we, he successfully reunited with the family. Uh, you know, it, 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 it's hard to watch sometimes them going from a dysfunctional you know, situation to your home back to a dysfunctional situation, right. even though the parents have made improvements. And the night before I, I took Josh back, he goes, I, I don't want to go. And I Aww. said, buddy, I said – you can and 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 I, I give foster the foster care people credit in South Carolina. I had legal visitation with Josh, which even is great. When, which, which is yeah. you know, and his parents didn't argue. His parents agreed. They right. they were like, no, he's a great influence. Let's keep that going, um, and and remain in touch with Josh all these years later. So so there are ways to do it, but it is especially when it comes to babies. Which by the way, if I've never told you, I'm scared to death of babies. Babies <laughs> scare me to death. Uh, so I, that was never an option for me. Uh, but I can imagine when you get a little baby and you go through the bonding process and then the parents or that dad randomly shows back up or whatever happens, there's horror stories that people who aren't prepared for that possibility, uh, it that's what makes it scary for a lot of people. Yeah, and I, I have clients that have taken in babies as foster parents. And because, and, and the problem is, is that sometimes uh, Department of Social Services will think that the child is going to probably be available for adoption. Right. Because given the situation in the biological, you know, family's household or households, um, it looks like this is not going to be a situation where these these folks are going to be able to get their act together. They're not going to be able to get off the drugs or they're not going to, you know, they're not going to be able to get off the alcoholic addiction or whatever it might be. And so I have folks that have been told this child will probably be available for adoption. And I'm always saying to folks that go into foster care, if the biological parent rights have not been absolutely terminated and the child is not completely freed up for adoption, 
you have to be guarded and in terms of protecting your heart because right. you just the goal is the first goal is to try to reunify the family and things happen sometimes where that that then comes about and so um, and even in the cases where the biological parents' rights have been terminated, I have seen DSS find a relative. And so those poor foster parents um, who think, well, now the biological parent rights have been terminated. We're going to be able to adopt this child. It's all freed up for adoption. And and then DSS finds that relative. Or DSS decides that um, we're going to put the three children from the one foster parent house and the three children from the other foster parent house all into one big happy family elsewhere. Um, so... It is tough being a foster parent, um, it, it, you know, even in those cases where you think that you're going to actually be able to adopt the child. Well, and that I, I've actually have witnessed in South Carolina in the courtroom, almost like a television show. Uh, the day of of final termination and all this, uh, the the dad randomly show up and the mom had exhausted her stuff. The dad couldn't be found. And the dad started the process all over again. Right. And it, I mean, it, it, like a drama where he walks into the door and I want my child and the judge has no option because it's always going to be, people assume it's always in the best interest of the child. It's always in the best interest. Their thought is the child being with the biological family is always in the child's best interest. Where I disagree with that premise, it is the law. Right. And the, the goal, the first goal is return home and re right. reunification. Always. The second goal is typically look to family and find a relative. And, you know, that that's what the, um, the, the poor social workers have to follow. And that's really the goals that, that they have to try to work toward, including uh, helping uh, provide those services, you know, providing the meeting rooms, providing the counseling for the biological parents, providing all those support services for them. To see, can we make this happen or or, or not right. happen? You right, know? and it's tough. It's tough for. Uh, uh, I belong to several Facebook groups with people with foster parenting uh, that have it going on, and, and I'm constantly seeing these posts about DSS is you know threatening to pull the child out, put him back with the mom. I know it's not in the and and it, it's just I don't want to sound callous, it, but it's just what is going to happen, and it, that's part of being a foster parent is being prepared. To watch something happen to a child you love that is not in their best interest, but and you know it's not in their best interest, right. but you have to sit back and accept it and support the plan. You agree to support the plan, even though you emotionally may not support it. You have to support it as far as the child knows you're supporting it, if they understand. Yeah, and um, I've actually had cases where we've um, filed an injunction to try to prevent the removal of the child but the judges will typically lean toward the favor of whatever DSS has mapped out for the child, even though they've been in that home for several years and you would think it's not the right thing to do. Um, we are going to be headed to the break, and if you would like to call into the show, 804-454-1366. We are talking today about what is it like to be a foster parent. Um, again, that number is 804-454-1366, and uh, we will be right back after the break. You've been listening to Raising the Bar, Greater Richmond's premier law talk radio show. Now, back to Raising the Bar.
We are back. This is Raising the Bar Law Talk Radio Show, and I'm here today. This is Colleen Quinn. I'm an attorney with Locke and Quinn and the Adoption and Surrogacy Law Center, and I'm here today with Joel Elston. One of he's become one of my favorite all-time favorite clients, and uh, we're talking about what it's like to be a foster parent. Right before the break, we were talking about um, going into foster parenting. Um, and those situations where foster parents may think they're going to be able to adopt the child, but for whatever reasons, uh, situations come about where the child actually gets removed from their home. And during the break, I was telling Joel about um, one of the cases I've had on, of, among many cases where the foster parent is is uh, thinking that they're going to adopt. Um, I had one single mom. She had a two-year-old and a three-year-old uh, sisters in her home for two years, and they considered her their mother. And then the uh, the biological parents went and had another child, a newborn baby, who was drug addicted, so he's immediately removed from their home. And that uh, drug addicted infant was placed in a different two-parent foster parent home. So uh, Department of Social Services decided, um, call it right or wrong, there's different viewpoints on all sides of the, of the fence, but uh, they decided they would remove the two girls, the two-year-old and the three-year-old, from my client's home and put them in the home uh, with the uh, the infant where there was a two-parent family. Um, and that, we, I, as the attorney for my client, the foster parent with the two girls, we did uh, try to file an injunction and, and intervene in that case. But the judge is left trying to weigh what's better for the kids. Um, and unfortunately, those two little girls were abruptly removed from my client's home uh, she wasn't allowed to have any further contact with them. Um, we know from attachment theory that that's, that's not a good thing for kids to abruptly remove them from somebody they consider their mom and have known. It's the only parent they've really known. Um, but then again, you have to balance that with the fact that now they're going to be in a, in a two-parent household where they'll be able to grow up with their brother. And they're just not easy, easy situations. And that that's becomes the hard part when you get into because this is that's a trauma right the, the your client basically lost her children it's, yes it's it's, it's she it was devastating for her it, she would have to grieve as if there were a death it, it's that bad it exactly. really is and and because they've been removed from her and she has no contact it's it's no different than losing your child not even any updates to see how they were doing right yeah. and 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 it's not from my perspective especially with my counseling background and, and working with so many kids there's just not a scenario that, in my mind, that outweighs at least continued contact. And one thing that I happen to believe, and maybe I'm biased because I am a single parent, but two-parent homes are not always the best setting. Right. It, it, you know, I know in my case, because of all three of my boys having, you know, the manipulative behaviors and stuff— I can be that one consistent voice. Right, I can, they can't play. They, they, there's they, nobody playing. They, yeah. yeah, they can't play yeah. off of two parents. Right, and, yeah. and I, while I love my kids, I also don't allow that, uh, you know, poor me or this or that, that mentality. So you don't have, sometimes you can get more consistent parenting. So I, I know several DSS workers, uh, case workers that actually look for single parents in certain situations because of that. Well, a lot of these kids need some pretty firm boundaries. And so if you have one parent with one set of rules, right. it, it makes it a little bit easier. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, the idea that you can get, and, and just as you were describing during the break, you while this two-parent family, I'm sure, are great people, they now have added two more children to their plate. So the Right, and they're already taking care of, of a child that was drug exposed right. that's now going you know, through withdrawal. Right, so you, you, you now have a situation that's much more chaotic, 
you and I'm sure there's going to be behaviors by the other children. So, uh, it, you know, it, it just becomes this uh, cycle to watch. And sometimes the laws don't look, oftentimes the laws don't take into account the absolute best interest of the child. And I know several guardian at litems that, that, you know, great people, but they get very frustrated because, you know, they see, they clearly can see that. And the judge will often side randomly with DSS, even if DSS is wrong. Right. I have seen a lot of judges defer to DSS. And then most foster parents can't afford an attachment expert. And normally you need that attachment expert to show that there is a clear attachment. It's going to be detrimental to remove this child from this home where they they are so attached to their foster parent. That's a um, an area of the law that I'm always struggling with because if a foster parent gets to the point where they sign an adoptive placement agreement in Virginia, then that child cannot be removed from their home at that point without a hearing. Right. So we have a really good, uh, we're in a really good spot when they've signed that adoptive placement agreement. I'm like, if you can get to signing that adoptive placement agreement, now that foster parent's going to have um, many more rights because now we, we have to have a hearing before that child is removed. But before they get to the point where they've signed that adoptive placement agreement, that child can be removed um, by DSS at any time Absolutely. for any reason. Yes. Um, and I even had a client who refused to sign the adoption assistance agreement. She had two little girls in her home for several years, and she, she asked if she could have an attorney review the adoption assistance agreement before she signed it because, you know, we're talking about subsidy money for these kids, you know, for until they turn 18 and in some cases 21. And so, um, and then because she wanted to have an attorney review it, the DSS worker removed those two girls. And unfortunately she didn't come to me until a year later. And at that point the damage was already done and it was, it was too late to file an injunction with the court. Um, But if I can get in and get that injunction before the child is actually removed or the children are removed, then at least we have a shot at keeping the children put until we hear, have a judge, you know, hear the situation. Well, and as you're describing, one of the things that, that I have seen when you have personality conflicts, a lot of times the actual DSS worker, uh, for whatever reason, will have a, uh, in, in the majority, by the way, my, are, are really good are people. Fabulous. Yes. They, yes. They, 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 and I, so I, I've never had this situation personally. But I have worked with families or helped families that have had a DSS, what I call was sort of a militant in their view. And the, you know, the moment they were offended, well, I want to review it, they'll pull the, to punish the family, they'll pull the children out. Right. And it, it's not a, um, you know, the idea that you should be able to have an attorney review that. And, and especially, uh, as you're talking about, this, it's a substantial amount of money that, and, and for, in some people's lives, that's a big, big amount of money that would make well, a big it, difference. it can make the difference whether they're able to actually care for the child. I right. mean, that subsidy money is there to, so that that child can succeed. Right. You know, and in some cases, it, it could be that that parent is going to have to take, go back from a full-time job to a part-time job in order to take that child to all the therapy and doctor sessions and, you know, uh, occupational therapy, speech therapy, et cetera. And so it, that money is can be critical to the success of the child, that subsidy money. And I get into, uh, I get hired in a lot of cases to help folks fight for the subsidy money. And I'm always saying to DSS, look at this money is there for the success of this child. You right. know, this is, these, these folks aren't trying to look to pad their pockets, you know? <laughs> well, it, 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 it's, you know, the, 
you know, there is a concept, and, and I'm not saying that these people haven't existed, uh, but there's a belief that certain people get into foster care and, oh, they just want to collect the checks right. or they want to do that. And, and again, in my world, it, it doesn't offset what we spend in a week. I mean, so it, it, it but I, I know my case is not, you know, normal, but it, it is something that the majority of the people that I know that get into this pro- are good people. Uh, this helps the child. I, with all of my kids, any amount, when I, whatever amount of money I get every month, it goes into a special account for them. I won't touch it. It, it when they're when they're grown. I mean, I won't give them access to it. With, right. Right. Because Lord knows that that would be pretty. But it will be used for either training or college. TJ, for example, took a, a, a some a class that you know some schooling that I used that money to pay for that. I was going to buy him a car with that, and and so there there's stuff that you can put that back in, in, and that's how I view it. But there's other people that really need the money from the month to month, as you're saying. You know, getting. Um, today, here's a great example. Uh, you know, schools canceled in in Hanover County. I have this uh, with you, and I have patients I need to see today. So, you know, I'm I'm spending a, a, a you know hundred bucks to have uh, Justin taken care of for the day, right. and and that's awesome. I'm glad I'm able to do it. But that's just some people wouldn't be able to do that. Yes, and another thing, um, when foster parents are looking uh, to adopt and they're looking at the adoption assistance agreement and the subsidy money is that I have seen many cases where they are only given the questionnaires that ask about uh, their financial background and not the questionnaires that ask about the kids' behavioral problems and issues. Um, So there is uh, something that um, uh, FACES, an organization um, for foster parents, put out. It's a a tool. Um, So the, the, the topic, the item is called a VMAT. That's the tool that is used to assess what subsidy money will be available. And this is a parent's guide to the VMAT, which is a really awesome questionnaire that asks the parents specifically about all of the different behaviors of the child. Are they bedwetting at night? Are they getting up at night? Um, with all of their emotional behaviors, um, all the doctors and counselors and therapists, et cetera, that they're seeing. Um, special things that they might need. We had one kid, he was, um, anything that was soft, soft toys or whatever, he would uh, chew up. And so he needed special teethers, teething equipment. And so it can be a variety of different types of um, pieces of equipment or tools or um, toys or learning toys, et cetera. Um, So this wonderful tool, the Parent's Guide to the VMAT, really makes the foster parent who's looking to adopt the child sit down and list all of the different behaviors, the different needs of the child, et cetera, which then factor into the VMAP formula. And it's really important to not only look at the side of what what can the foster parents that are now looking to adopt, what can they they afford, what what is their income, et cetera, but let's look at what this kid's needs are going to be because those those needs could be pretty substantial. And that, that earlier I mentioned I was a therapeutic foster parent to an organization. And to me, the unfair part of this is if you have a child that's placed in therapeutic foster care and then they're then they get adopted get into adoption process they're automatically given the vmat uh scoring it, it, it it's they're automatically given that subsidy just because of the route they got there right if you have a child that you're directly from dss and is not in that process you have to battle to even get them to score it and and count it or, or because in fact i've been told by some caseworkers that just recently that we can't give it without anymore without going through the route of therapeutic foster care which is not true 
Right. But it is it's what they believe, and uh, so this that's where you come in having to make these battles, which is a substantial amount of money. It's about double in most cases of what you get in just the. It makes a huge difference if somebody is going to be getting $1,000 a month versus $400 a month for that until that child's age 18. Right. And then if they're part of a sibling set, even though one child might have special needs and the other one doesn't, they automatically get the VMAT. Right. So, you know, there are are a lot of things here where you're going, wait a minute, why are we having to fight so hard? So we've got a a child that's not as part of a sibling group. (laughs) And we've got to fight so hard to get subsidy money for this child to succeed. And that and that becomes the the unfair battle. And and that that's an area we need to look at because you know in I believe it's in in most states, any child that's in foster care uh, at ten years of age or older is automatically considered special needs anyway. I mean it it, it you're automatically in a position where you cannot adopt a child through any means without there being some trauma attached to that adoption. Adoption, while it's a great event uh, or, or, you know, for a family, it's a building of a family, it also represents the breaking up of another family, a loss of a family. Right. So there's a trauma attached to that. So there, you know, I know with, with uh, both Chris and TJ and, and as, as the stuff we went on, especially as they, they hit maturity, a lot of the issues came up. And, and I had to be very proactive and fight to get them the help they needed and you know that, and it is something that not everybody is able to fight. And you know, right. and, and 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 that, and also I've seen you know when when I go into battle, so to speak, in one of these, a lot of times, okay, just give it to him. It's just not worth the argument because he's not going to shut up. You know, and and, and, and and so, but not everybody is a strong advocate in that way. I mean, a lot of times, and you have to be delicate too. Yeah. You don't want to tick somebody off right. to the point where you're going to right. They're, now they're going to remove the child. Right. Yeah. It, there, there's a, there becomes that that balance. So so that's an area that I hope can be improved on one day where where it's not about this isn't about welfare or trying to give you know the concept that if you look at the cost of keeping a child in foster care to their 18 anyway and the services that are being provided, it's still a much cheaper route. You know, I I know, you know, I'm an advocate for uh, if if a child's in foster care right now and they're they're 14 years old. They're, and they stay in foster care. That the state of Virginia will pay for them to go to a state college as long as their grades are up. Yeah. Now, if they get adopted, that's removed from them. Right. And so that's a, that's a cost. Right. So to the, to the state. Right. Yeah. yeah. So so the in in reality, in in some ways, if you're looking at it from a strictly a financial benefit, you're better off saying, "Well, just keep fostering the child, but don't adopt them because you'll get college paid for." Well, that. The, the that's that's a silly incentive. It's a silly incentive. Yeah. And, and so I I just wish we could look at it that there is nothing better that can be done for a child that's in foster care to give them that permanent home, whether they're 15, 16, or 21. It, it's that, you know, that concept that you have that home at Christmas to go to, that, that mom or dad to call when you, you break up, or just having that support system reduces we're going to pay in my mind and i you know it's funny because i I have so conservative views in so many areas and what people view as liberal views you're going to pay for this one way or another right and if you get that child into a permanent home they are less apt to become engaged in criminal behavior less apt to be homeless i mean there are just so many benefits that ultimately save the state and u.s taxpayer with regard to to really having saved that child so the subsidy money is supposed to be there to help the child succeed and um 
I often tell clients too, there's there's subsidy money up to two thousand dollars for attorney fees. Right. So we charge a thousand dollar flat fee to finalize an adoption out of foster care. Um, and then sometimes uh, some of the subsidy money will be used if we have a celebration hearing like we did with Justin, right. um, your son. And um, But some of that money I can actually use as part of my bill to fight for the subsidies. Um, so I will, I'll tell people, look, at the 2000 for the attorney fees, that's automatic. Right. You know, that, that should be autom- automatically. Um, but then let's make sure you fill out the Parent's Guide to the VMAT. Let's make sure we have captured every single possible thing that can go into the VMAT formula so that we spit out that number that is going to get you the greatest amount of money for this child's success. Um, and a lot of foster parents are not aware that they have that ability to to fight to get a little bit more money to help their child succeed. And and I I always tell no matter what financial position you're in, you know, several of my friends have have fostered and eventually adopted, and they're in great financial position. I don't care if you make a million dollars a year; you need you, you, it's for that child. That right. money is for that child. It, yes. It, it's it's just not it's not a benevolent oh I, I don't need that use that money it's like you need the Medicaid you know for a while there was a big push to uh, in some states we don't want them on Medicaid you 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 get them on your own insurance you lose Medicaid well that fell apart quickly and and yeah you know, because most of these kids have major medical right, right. and counseling needs yeah, you, and, you, and with the cost of, of medical care. Oh, you, you would never yeah. get them covered in, in, in a way that would be sufficient. So Medicaid is just a mandatory piece that goes along with them. And again, I'm not, I'm not advocating. The, these kids have done nothing to be in this position. Right. The, the, this is not, you know, when you can argue, do we need this? Do we need that? I, you know, for example, when, um, you know, a foster care kid is placed in her school he automatically gets free lunches. It, it, there's no form to fill out. You, you check the foster care box, they get free lunches. When when the adoption was, you would laugh at this, when the adoption was legal for Justin, I immediately notified the school that we do not qualify for free lunches. Please remove him. That took a month to get him off of free <laughs> you know, I had to battle the other side of that. Said, we, we, Wait, we don't need, we don't need we, it anymore. We don't need it anymore. <laughs> but but it, 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 these things are in place. And being educated, being able to, uh, and when I mean educated on the process, and have the 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 delicate balance of advocating without scaring them off, without angering a DSS. Right, worker. you don't want to have a clash with a DSS worker, and I, and I've seen some of that, and I've seen it on the other side too, where the foster parent um, has a sense of entitlement, mm. and I'm always like, look at, you're in a delicate position, you you can't come off with an edge or a sense of entitlement and you really need to work really try to do your best to work with this social worker um, because you're all trying to work for what's in this child's best interest together that is that is the key and, and with everything there are I've seen a lady that would just convince you know the VMAT is, has different numbers attached to the scoring and the higher the scoring the higher the subsidy well, she had this young man that, that actually was rated way too high. I mean, he, he was getting – the subsidy was a large amount of money. Well, and they're looking at it and, and started and said, no, no, he's way too high. Well, she said, I'm not going to adopt him if I don't keep getting the subsidy. It's just and, – and they said, okay, we'll, we'll find – I mean, she – She just locked in. She just, and, yeah. And, and that wasn't a reasonable position either. You know, no. part, of, part of one of the things that I've learned any time that I'm, I'm doing these, but I have to be prepared that – it isn't always going to go the way I want it to go. 
Right. And there's a lot of give and take. And it's all in the balance of this child. So let's talk about another thing that's a mystery to foster parents with regard to what their rights are. And that is um, the right to attend the foster parent review proceedings and also the right to hire an attorney to uh, to to look at the case file for you, because otherwise foster parents are not allowed to look at the child's case file. Um, And while they sometimes uh, sometimes might get summoned to the foster parent review proceedings or sometimes might get a report, um, they actually uh, have become de facto parents. That is, they are parents. They've stepped in. They are parents, in fact. And so I will say, you know, you do have standing to attend the foster parent review proceedings and and see what the goal is for the child now, see what's being reported to the court. Um, and in addition, if you get to the point where you need to hire an attorney, um, that, that attorney that they hire now can appear at the proceeding too and also be able to review the case file with regard to the child. A lot of foster parents um, are not aware that they have that ability. And I, I have seen cases where DSS workers have actually encouraged them not to be involved and, and because of, of various reasons. Right. And, and I will speak from my personal experience, again, with all three of mine. I had workers that were total advocates for the child. They encouraged me to be there, and, of course, I was. I spoke up. Uh, I was given incredible respect and, and standing as a parent at that point. So, I mean, when I – you know, I, I've had great experience with that where everybody was involved and and, and – and the judge, I've actually was the one where they had a, a arbitration, and the judge was there. This was with uh, Chris, and the judge basically deferred to me over everybody. So, well, this guy's the parent. At the end of the day, you're this guy, with yeah, the yeah, kid every day. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> let, let's, you know, he he knows what he's doing, and, and he he just basically said, "You tell me what you want," and and so so being able to do that is a a necessary in my mind a a, a thing, and, and and you have that right, and again, implementing that attending speaking, but at the same time, not taking it personally and not getting on a, a, a standing of entitlement or I'm, I'm you know, I'm going to, it's just not going to work that way. It's a delicate balance it for is. foster parents to it maintain, um, but it's important to know that, that they have that right to be informed and they have the right, you know, to attend those hearings and also tell the judge how things are going in the household with the child, et cetera. I mean, they're the ones that most immediately know the child's behaviors and how the child is progressing and, and, and doing rather than having it reported as hearsay to the court. Um, having that foster parent there, the, the judge can hear right from the source of that de facto parent. And when you read the case history of the child, I I, I was amazed at uh, – in Justin's case, it was a little different because I, I knew what I was doing much more. And I did a you lot. You were seasoned of, at that yeah, point. Yeah, this yeah. was your third round. Yeah, third round. <laughs> but the first two, I read the case file. And as I got to know the kid, it wasn't remotely accurate. It, 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 the, some of the stories that were told in the, about what happened didn't match the reality of what happened. And, and I see some cut and paste going r- on. Yes. You know, it's like cut and paste from the initial report. And then it's, it, and then it's maintained. It's almost like medical records in exactly. some ways. You know, they, like the cut and paste. And then if the if the original report has some inaccuracies, then it continues to get reported through for each that's subsequent foster care absolutely. review plan. And that that's the piece for me that was that to learn was, okay, that, that a human being is recording this from a perspective. And, you know, the, there's certain kids that are likable and certain kids that aren't likable. You know, there's certain kids. So a lot of times there'll be a bias in reporting toward the child of, of where, you know, it, it not intentional, but again, if 
if you're reporting on someone you don't particularly like and they're 12, you know, they're yeah. 12 years old, you don't like how they treat you, you're, the bias could be the other way too. And it, it's, it's unfortunate. So before we close out, let's just also mention the CASA worker um, because um, sometimes the, there's a CASA worker involved that also is visiting with the child in the home, et cetera. And it's really important for the foster parent to um, cultivate a good relationship with that CASA worker because that CASA worker is also filing a report with the court. Um, and I, I don't know if you had, um, not every case has a CASA worker um, put on it. Um, so I don't know with any of your kids if you worked with a CASA worker. All of them had one. Okay. Uh, the, uh, Chris's and uh, TJ's were delightful people who immediately just said that meeting me in the environments that they became my biggest ally. Um, Justin's CASA worker is a little wacky. Um, <laughs> uh, he, he, I, I he didn't, you know, he acted like he really knew Justin, and but I, I'm and I'm hearing him describe him going, "Have you ever met him?" Right. I mean, yeah. Same thing with the guardian uh, of light. On some yeah, of them, yeah, have yeah. never met the child. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so a lot of times, it's, it's, it, you're looking at, like, uh, but overall, uh, they can be great allies, and and when when you the more people you can get to be your advocate, and, right? You know, it, and and that's why it becomes so important to not even though people may anger you. You have to walk that balance. You have to be, and then once they get on your side, and they realize you do have that child's best interest at heart, ninety nine percent of the time we're going to be in good shape. Yeah, including that guardian ad litem, who's the attorney that's appointed for the child. That's another voice for the child that it's important for the foster parent to work hand in glove. The same, with. the same way. Yeah, right. they they can be the your greatest ally or your biggest thorn in your side. So, you know, and and, and understanding that's all part of it. Right. And, and if everyone can just work in the best interest, you know, the goal is the best interest of the child. Let's give the child stability one way or the other. If it's return home, if it's moved for the goal of adoption, um, this has been a fabulous show talking to Joel Elson today about what it is like to be a foster parent. Join Michelle Louane next week when she talks about workers' comp issues. Uh, we're excited to invite Michelle back to the show. Have a great snowy day. Here's the best news and talk. AM 820 WNTW Chester is the answer.